For Agility's Sake. Welcome to For Agility's Sake, where we tell the story of Amway's agile journey with the goal of sharing the lessons and experiences of the practitioners, leaders, and everyone involved in our transformation at Amway. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kyle Spitzley, and with me today is a special guest, Arlo Belshi and Aaron Koval, and Mark Denman from our Agile Transformation Office. And these three gentlemen have joined me today for a special episode to talk about technical excellence and technical craftsmanship. And so we've had a number of conversations around this, and they, they're all very passionate about the subject. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to introduce these folks and let them uh, jump in and start this conversation and tell you about the journey that we've been on at Amway in trying to improve our technical craftsmanship. So with that, I'll hand it over. If we could do a 60-second introduction, guys, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Kick it over to you, Arlo, and then you pass it to whoever you like. Okay. So I'm on a mission to eliminate uh, bugs in the entire software industry. It is my goal that uh, within some number of years, and I haven't figured out how many that's going to take, we will have new junior developers who show up and a year into their working, they go to the bar with the senior developer who regales them with the story of this thing that used to happen called a bug. And they are shocked and amazed and wonder why we would ever program in such a way that we deal with that, that we have half of our time dedicated to bugs, that we create entire departments of the business that are there wholly to handle all of the bugs and the repercussions of the bugs, that we have companies sue each other over bugs, that we have this tremendous loss of time, energy, human capital, money, and everything that we choose as a world to spend on software defects. And I say that as choose because over 20 years ago, teams started finding other ways to work and ways to work that they didn't create the bugs in the first place. And then once they didn't create the bugs, they didn't have to spend time finding them and they didn't have to spend time fixing them and they didn't have to spend time reporting them and triaging them and doing sales support calls to work around them and doing tech support calls and doing on and on and on and on. And that's what led to the whole movement of automation. Uh, once the bugs were gone, you could automate things that had to be manual before so that you could work around the bugs uh, <clears throat> and eventually into the whole DevOps movement. And so my whole mission has been going to companies both as a full-time employee insider um, and as a consultant outsider. I do both at the same time and really helping them work on their legacy code because the place where bugs are hardest to get rid of is wherever the code is gnarliest, has been touched for the longest, it's close to the, the heartblood of the business and so no one dares disrupt it and so it gets just a little worse every year for 30 years. And that's the code I specialize in. That's my whole career is how do we get those parts of the, of the company to not have any bugs? I love it. That is a magical idea. I can only imagine that future. That sounds awesome. Aaron, yeah. give us a quick introduction for yourself. Uh, I, uh, I think I need to reevaluate my life. My goals are <laughs> not nearly as lofty as Arlo's. That is uh, reaching for the stars. I like it though. Yeah, so uh, Aaron Coville, I'm a... Uh, senior software developer here at Amway. I've uh, been here for about a year and a half, but I've been in the field for a little over a decade now. I, I guess I'm here to weigh in as a as a sort of a recipient of the knowledge transfer from Arlo on how to how to apply these habits and shifts to magically remove all signs of bugs in the in the code. 
Uh, so I'm looking forward to diving into that uh, a little bit deeper as we as we move on. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for joining us, Aaron and Mark. Yeah, uh, morning. This is great to be here. So Mark Denman, um, I am one of the uh, technical coaches in our transformation office. So partnered with Arlo and folks alike, uh, Llewellyn Falco as well. Previously, they both kind of play in the same space, um, working with teams uh, like Aaron's and just from my perspective, relatively new in kind of the technical coach role, only about two years deep. Um, so it's been great to kind of shadow people like Arlo and learn um, kind of how they do this um, with the intent that, you know, I can take that knowledge and learning and be able to help apply that internally and across teams at Amway. One thing I did want to quickly ask is you did mention legacy code. So Arlo, just for the audience, can you can you give your quick definition of what defines legacy code? So yeah, I, I, I have two definitions that I use for legacy code. So when I'm talking precisely, what I mean by legacy code is the legacy of the business, whatever is core to delivering the, the most important value to the company. Like it is the essence of the business's history of success encoded in a way that's automated and will carry forward. Now, the challenge with that is legacy code is then often also indebted code, code that has really high pain to modify. Uh, and the best way to, to assess that or to think about it is it's code that developers legitimately fear to change. Uh, developers uh, uh, create, you know, learn a spidey sense where they can look at code or they historically have experience with the code and they know if I change this, all shit's gonna break loose. Oh, and this is the legacy and heart blood of the business, so it's gonna have huge impacts on the business. Whereas there's this other code that's not so indebted, I can change it and it probably won't break. And it doesn't matter even if it does, <laughs> right? So legacy code and the, the worst code, code of course, uh, and when I'm speaking sloppily, I'm meaning stuff that is both the heart blood of the business and scary to change. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the just uh, background on that. One quick thing I was just going to jump in. So Aaron, if you can think about your your decade of development, maybe just describe in your own words or tell us, tell the audience like what pain you've had like before learning this experience with Arlo? Yeah, well, obviously different organizations, there's different, a little bit different practices in place, but sort of the one commonality, but the, the probably the biggest one is really what Arlo just touched on, which is it's difficult to, to change or, or even to take it a step further, practice test-driven development on existing code bases, right? Because there, there's a bit of a catch-22 involved there where you, you fear refactoring because you don't have tests to sort of confirm that you didn't break anything, but you need to refactor in order to write the tests because the code's not written in a way that allows you to properly test it. So you're sort of stuck in this loop where you're like, I want to test this, but I need to refactor it. And then if I refactor it, how do I know I didn't break anything? And that's probably the single biggest takeaway from the discussions with Arlo is that, you know, really using those tools and what is a safe refactor and what is a dangerous one and being able to apply that in a way that effectively allows me and the team, right, to work with a legacy code base so that we can refactor it first safely without worrying about breaking anything. And then we can apply the tests for the new feature or new code that we want to add and be confident moving forward. Probably secondarily, I would say, would be just around code reviews because of the practice of having smaller commits and, and tagging them with what the commit did, right? Calling out which, which commits are, are safe, which ones are risky, allows the person reviewing the code to focus on the changes that matter most. 
particularly things I think, uh, Arlo, you've talked about before, you know, you get the, the refactor or like somebody uses a different IDE and it auto formats on save and they don't know. And it's, it, the diff is massive, but they change like a tiny bit. When that gets rolled into 15 commits like that, you cannot effectively review what changed in that in that code base reliably. So uh, even at Amway, I would say that a lot of the code reviews were, <laughs> they sort of fell into developer reputation, right? Like if it was a new developer, you reviewed it. You you spent the time, you might even pull that branch down so that you can look at it in your ID because it's hard to see all the diffs like inside of, you know, the the PR. But if it was somebody that was experienced, you might just glance at it and go, yeah, it looks good, you know, because it was too much to, to take in and you didn't have the time. And and the challenge is when you go look across, you know, industry as a whole uh, and Amway's, Amway is no outlier. Like there's, <laughs> this is a very standard experience. And across the industry as a whole, developers on average write about three bugs per day. And they catch many of them themselves. But all of the other things that we do and the code reviews and, and uh, testing and all those sorts of things are defined to the ones that you didn't catch before you tried to, to do that commit. And that's true even of the most senior developers, right? Because it turns out that the rate at which you write bugs has more to do with the code that you're working on than the skill of the developer who's working on it. And there is a little bit that's developer skill. Uh, we work with that, but often the more skilled developers then get tossed to the more difficult and dangerous code. So it averages out, right? Um, they're still getting assassinated by bad code. And so even though you trust them more, those developers are still going to be creating those three bugs every day. And if you have those massive commits, you can't do the code review, you're not going to find them at that stage. Yeah, 100% true. And the previous employers that I've had, this is pretty much the norm. This is software development in the, in this day and age. Whenever a developer feels like saving is when the commit happens. You know, like, I feel like I made some progress. I better check this in as a, as a like a restore point. It's not done with the context of, you know, calling out risk. And, and I think I have, I have a, maybe a good analogy, I guess, on, on how this helped me apply this in practice, which was once the perception of doing these small commits and tagging them, once you start thinking about that as not just for yourself, that you're that you're communicating this risk for the person or people reviewing your code or for other team members and tagging them, you know, communicating that change psychologically, that helps for me instill that practice. You know, I, I can equate it to uh, in high school, I was perpetually late. Like I was always tardy. Like I'm not a morning person and I never made it on time. My, my first period teacher would sometimes just lock the door and I had to sit in the hallway until he let me because I was so late <laughs> all the time. And it was just a joke. And then I started being able to drive, right? Myself at school. And I didn't make me more on time. I was still late all the time. But then I was a little bit older, like six months older than some of my friends. Like I was September and there a lot of them were March, like the same calendar year. So I could drive before they could. And I started giving them rides to school. And when I on those days that I was giving them rides, I was never late because I didn't want to make them late. I didn't care if I was late, but I wasn't going to be responsible for making them late. And that's kind of how how practicing in this code has helped too, because once you start thinking that it's not just for you, that you're doing this for someone else, that someone else is depending on you tagging this, then it makes it easier to adopt the practice, at least for me. Uh, that is a very common thing I hear. It, it seems like one of the strongest universal traits of developers 
is the sense of I'm doing this for us. I want to even even when we do the bad things, like I'm going to rush my feature out the door and I know it's a pile of debris. Why am I doing that? Because the other eight developers on my team all got their stuff in on time and I don't want to make the release date and make them look bad. So we do the good things for the good reasons. We do the bad things for the good reason. We all believe in this. We're there for our teams. We're all supporting our teams. The insight loop, a lot of it is is extracting the essence of good development and strong development culture and aligning with it. So that's that's why I focus on commits. I'm trying to help people figure out how to work in small chunks and how to be a little more metacognitive and aware. Because I noticed that the people who work with legacy code, they can always tell you not just what they're doing right now, but they can sit back and say, I wanted to execute this change from this state to that state and I'm doing it in this safe way, <laughs> right? They've got that meta awareness. And a lot of developers that are used to more greenfield or creating things, they're in a more exploratory mode. I'm playing around with it and trying to get this damn thing working. And when I've got it working, then, then I'll check in, right? And so I wanted to teach that mindset shift. But just teaching that, I would run into exactly the problem that you had around lateness, where like, yeah, okay, it's better for me, but who cares? But by really focusing on the commits and with the way we're communicating risk to each other, and how we're helping each other understand that risk and reduce it overall. Suddenly all of the developer culture and that core value system that we share aligns and we go, oh yeah, let's do it this way. <laughs> so yeah, I mentioned a little of the insight loop. I've talked with a lot of people over the years uh, as I was working on legacy code for, the, for a decade and, and, and then uh, working with teams on theirs and found these very common patterns. The source of that, the first thing that we started with is what I eventually distilled into the, the insight loop. That's what we worked a little bit on here. It's, uh, but this is sort of the essence of how to think like a legacy developer. And so as such, I think it would be really interesting to explore you as a recent recipient of having experienced that. Right? How has that shifted how you think and how you approach code and, and the way that you think of development? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in some ways, it's like one step back, two steps forward. We talk about, uh, in, in some of the, the lessons we're talking about, about sort of staying in flow, right? And, and committing more frequently and just doing small changes, like right? what's the next obvious thing, right? Particularly when you're refactoring, but even when you're writing new features, it's like just, just small pieces, check it in, right? And sometimes now there's a bit of a pause before I start, which isn't bad. Right. You know, you, the, a little bit more of a plan. I'm like, OK, what's what? How am I going to do this? Whereas before I, I might have a tendency to just start writing code because the nature of that exploratory practice. Right. Like, I'm just going to try this out and then I'll just undo it. Right. I'll just discard my local changes. That didn't pan out. I'll try something else. Right. And yeah, I'm learning from that, but it's not the most efficient way. If I take that pause up front, think it through, it still may not work out. Right. You, but you but you vetted it a little bit more. And then you go through that process with the small commits and it's planned a little bit more. That helps. I know that we want to stay in the flow, but there's a little bit of a, a break before get into flow, which I don't think is a bad thing. But yeah, it is it is tricky to remind myself to code in this way. I think part of it too is that for me, I focus a lot more on the small commits and the tagging stuff that I've highlighted earlier. And I think that's because those things apply very well to like new feature development, right? Whereas I know we've talked about legacy code and that, but predominantly since 
receiving this knowledge, I've been working on new feature development. And those types of things apply equally well to new feature development. But it's a little harder to see how do you apply uh, knowing how to extract methods from large methods in new feature development, because it doesn't seem like it comes up as much. Yes, exactly. Part of the, this stuff is showing some of my biases where I'm looking at where the bugs are at. <laughs> it's the, in the existing code. And I'm, I'm looking at, at those. And so I've created the things with those examples and, and with that with that way of thinking. And so it's really well targeted to, to that. The same techniques can be useful in new feature development, but they're not as obvious. It's not as obvious when I should do extract method and so on. So this is excellent dialogue here. Um, I guess we talked about kind of insight loop, but have you can can you kind of explain what it is? Like, what is the step of the insight loop? If you want to give us background on um, on that, and then Aaron can perhaps, you know, kind of give some of his insights. Yeah. No pun intended there, but um, <laughs> on how that went and things that maybe he enjoyed about it or or wasn't necessarily in agreement about when he when he first started. Or even now. Both. Or even now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the insight loop, what I really noticed when I was working, especially with with skilled developers deep in legacy code Myers uh, and indebted code Myers was that we naturally changed our whole way of approaching. And I actually, it crystallized when I started, when I was talking with some people in fine art about how you teach someone to paint. And they said, teaching someone to paint is fundamentally about teaching them to see. We are used to seeing by looking and saying, ah, tree, and there's a bush around the tree. If I, from that attempt to paint, I will end up with the most awkward looking, terrible tree that looks nothing like what's before me and the bush will be, you know, it'll be all wrong. Instead, what you really need to learn when painting is to look over and see there's a glimpse of that color and then right next to it, a glimpse of this color and a bit of that sheen. And you get almost to the whole pointillism thing of one dot, one dot, one dot, one dot, right? And it's learning to see the scene in a whole different way. And when you can see things just naturally as they are, rather than through that interpretive thing, now you're ready to paint and you will get the texture of the bark exactly right because it's actually what you're seeing. I was noticing that legacy code menders, the experts at it, really do see things in a different way. And that's where everything comes from. They develop a bunch of techniques, but the core root that allows them to develop those techniques and that creates all the similarities and work is that they fundamentally see the practice of coding in a different way and they see code differently. And that's what this insight loop is about. It's about teaching you to see code. So we're used to looking at code and we talk about the design patterns and there's a singleton over here and there's a, a, a composition over there and we use some event-based dispatch and we, we have uh, you know, whatever you wanna talk about. When we think of it that way, that's like trying to paint by seeing a tree and thinking tree and drawing it, right? And it ends up awkward because the real solution for a piece, uh, for a problem for, is never going to be I need a perfect visitor iterating over a whatever. The real solution is going to be some sort of context dependent, domain dependent, very clear expression of exactly what is, right? And it's learning to see that. In, in new code, you have the disadvantage that there's no code you can see. So you have to look out at the world and then imagine what a code reflection of the world would be. And that is its own set of challenge. In legacy code, you've got ugly code in front of you, but the code that's in front of you is doing the right thing, sort of by definition. It is the legacy and, and history of your company. So whatever it's doing got you here and it's right. 
it may not be right going forward, but right now it is. And so you can learn to see the code in a different way. And the insight loop is all about analyzing how people, how these menders think about it and what they do. And what they do is they first look at the code and they assume this code is right, but awkward. And it's awkward for me today. It might even, it's, it's an acceptance that this wasn't awkward for the past, but now I'm take, doing something different. So I'm bringing in the difference. And it's this humility of I'm bringing in the difference. I need to honor and respect the code is right right now, except now it's awkward to me. So let's see and be very precise on what makes it awkward to me. Then once I see that, how do I make a very single simple change that makes it a little less awkward? So I see the awkwardness, I see the change, I write it down. And so I write it down with one of these refactorings. I put that into the code, making it just one little bit less awkward. Then I check for safety because menders are all about that safety. We're working on the legacy lifeblood of the company. <laughs> we can't afford to be making those random mistakes all over the place. And then we assess the safety and we record the risks and we think about the risks. We think about it at the beginning and then we think about it there at the end and then check in. And by doing that, we're now back in that state where we can step back and see again. If we don't do that commit, we are no longer are able to see because our lens is slightly fogged. We've got one thing that we're doing. We have some thoughts about where we're intending to go. And those thoughts are going to bring in our projections. That's us seeing tree instead of seeing little dabbles of black. Right? So once we check in, we can step back and go, ah, oh, that should be slightly gray. <laughs> so that's that's what the insight loop is. And that's it is an attempt to profoundly shift the way that developers see code. But to do that, one little finger change at a time of just when you're doing this, do this other thing a little differently because it's it's really hard to profoundly change the way you see, but it's really easy to change one behavior at a time and to just in this circumstance, try this other thing. Yeah, it's great. I think and I think in your cycle, you just you know, the idea is like <coughs> have, an in, have an insight, record it. Is it safe, better, no worse and commit or revert, right? Try it again. So it seems really easy like in practice, but maybe Aaron can kind of elaborate. Is it truly that simple to do, especially when maybe you've been developing or coding in some other matter for, let's say, a decade in his his case? Both. I don't I don't think that it's difficult to implement. I think it's difficult to get yourself to remember to do it when you have old habits. It's more practice, right? And, and reminding yourself to do certain things like I will still catch myself as I went too far and I got in it, I got a big commit, right? But now I won't check it in. I'll stash it and break it up. So I'm, I'm almost refactoring my commit in a way that that way, whereas before that would have been fine. I'd just been like, hey, commit. I did this thing. But again, that, that context of viewing it from somebody else going, oh, let's look at this. Let's let's clean it up and communicate the steps that I did. But yeah, it's it's really just practice. You know, I'm still getting better. I think I will still continue to get better at it. I think a good example is what Arlo touched on earlier about writing new features because I'm more confident in refactoring now that I'm less concerned with getting it perfect the first time before I commit where I before I would spend a lot of time on code both from a I want it to be perfect you know as perfect as I can make it but also I didn't want other people to see the garbage in the process you know I was it was a little bit of you know, self-conscious, you know, like I didn't want to see people, I didn't want to commit the garbage. I just wanted to people think that I was great. Look at my first try. Look what I did, you know, like <laughs> nailed it. Right away. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great. And that actually makes me think of stuff too, you know, uh, working with Arlo and others and not just uh, you, Aaron, on the team that we did, but 
this idea of, you know, again, sense of community respect, you know, I think a lot of the developers may have that. And sometimes the idea of perfection is that, you know, the enemy of progress and just being able to look forward. And I think one of the interesting things, me as a coach and a non-developer that I've noticed that just seems to make common sense to me, I'm like, yeah, this seems like it's really easy. It's just this idea of like really tight, small iterations that may not be perfect, but because you continue to practice that, maybe the thing we committed, you know, five commits ago, we end up stumbled across and we're now immediately refactoring it, you know, but we're doing it, you know, in such a tight cycle, you're always kind of ratcheting forward. And the other interesting thing I think I've noticed is that that sense of, I, I don't want my fellow developers to see that I, I did this. So it kind of comes along the idea, like this is working code, the developer or developers who wrote it at that moment in time, you know, they did the best they absolutely could with the information they were given and the skills they had, the knowledge they had. In my experience observing and talking about, you know, no, I've not met a developer yet that sets out to say, yeah, I'm, I'm looking to write like really poor code. You know, that's my goal. Um, so it's kind of this idea of, you know, respecting the code and, and not cone shaming. So from that perspective, you know, the idea of like trying to get something perfect, um, hopefully is not is something that others can kind of get over to as as well as like okay you know it doesn't have to be perfect because this is just a process right we're going to continue to evolve it and improve it in such a way absolutely i think that i personally have worked and i think maybe any developer that's been in in, in the field for you know many years and worked at different places uh, you know i i started out working at places that that didn't necessarily have the best culture around the junior versus senior. There was a lot of ego and arrogance. So that sort of instilled this, I got to hide the work, right? You know, like that I'm working here because I, I don't want people to see this because there was, there was that inherent from, from the senior developers. There was this inherent ego and arrogance and they were great, you know, and you, you, you didn't want them to see how bad you were basically. They, and they, and it, now that I'm in that position, I mean, I think it was, it was all bullshit, right? Like they, they, they were, were hiding it too. Yeah, yeah, they were hiding it too. <laughs> you know, they're they're still over there looking at Stack Overflow like everybody else. You know, like it's not. But yeah, I think there was definitely a uh, an element of that in in my sort of developer upbringing that encouraged that self consciousness that I had for a long time around committing work in progress. You know, you kept it locally. You know, you might stash it and have work in progress, like stash, but you kept it locally until it was in a in a good enough state that you want that you were comfortable having other people see it. It's sort of like you know, you know, you're like writing a book, right? Like you're not you're not sharing your terrible draft. You know, you're getting it to a to a good state before you share it with people. Like, hey, check out, you know, read this and let me know what you think. But you've already edited, you know, a bunch of times to get there. Whereas, you know, with this code, we want to we want to sort of scrap that, you know, because we're all working on the book quote unquote together, you know, so we don't want to hold it up. Just, just get it in there. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. I was going to jump ahead too to one of these things, because again, I vividly remember it and maybe the, both of you can have a quick dialogue about your experience and the thought behind them. So one of the things in the insight loop that we learn is naming. So there's this kind of habit called naming as a process. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Arlo, but yep. in, in one of the shifts or skills you learn practicing this is the idea of, you know, just coming up with nonsense names. So maybe you guys can, you can talk about that and share like kind of the, the idea behind it, how it felt and what the actual outcome or the intention is of doing that. Yeah, this is without a doubt, the most terrible, terrible, terrible idea in everything that I teach. And it, it, every developer that I teach it to says the 
you thinking, Arlo? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's a really good one to talk about there. <laughs> so, yeah, Aaron, what's your experience? <laughs> so maybe you can set the stage, though, like what exactly is this? Yeah, okay, so I'll state it first the most stupidly way, stupid way, which is uh, I've got some code. I don't know what it does because it's gnarly a bit, or I just can't really think of a good name for it. So I will just name it applesauce. Literally, name it applesauce, check it in. So that that's the way that sounds the most dumb um, and is the core of the practice. Uh, and then we can talk about why it's not a dumb idea, but but first, just from there, I go, Aaron, what's, <laughs> what are your thoughts and experiences? Yeah, so first, from, from naming as a process perspective, right? I am entirely okay. It, it was, like you said, a, you know, a tough pill to swallow at first. Uh, <laughs> but I'm entirely okay, and I've come to terms with it, and I'm on board with obvious nonsense as part of the naming process, right? It, it, it facilitates quick extractions. Uh, you know, they extract a method. I don't know what this does, you know, but uh, I'll get back to it, right? The, the struggle that I have is leaving it in the code base, which I remember having this conversation and this is the struggle where I'm like, okay, part of the process, I'm fine, but but leaving applesauce in the code base, correct me if I'm wrong, that was okay in, in yes. the practice. Yes. That's the part that I'm not on board with. That's that was what a, hell no. Yeah. If yeah. it's in a process and it's in my branch or whatever as part of this refactoring as an iterative step, totally fine with it. But leaving it in the code base is, is the, is the line that I draw. I, I, yeah. And that's, that's understandable. Uh, and so the first level of switching to thinking of naming in a process is the one that you've already done. And so that is, uh, before this, we think of names as I will sit back and come up with the name, right? Mm -hmm. It is naming and I come up with the best name that I can. And then I go on and I do my next thing, but I'm done with the name. Naming as a process says that uh, that's actually really, really freaking hard because there's so many different considerations that you're taking into account in order to come up with a good name. And probably the uh, getting the right names actually requires the code to be structured differently than it is. The name, the code as it is structured probably isn't even nameable well. <laughs> in the end, you're going to have to name this to page load because that's what it's doing. It's all doing all sorts of different random crap. So naming as a process is a way that we break that up, naming part and we have this sequence of steps that you go through and, and allows you to iteratively refine the code, the name for the code, get feedback, keep going forward. So that's the first part and that's the part that you've done uh, very, very well uh, and are good at, at doing. At that point, it does feel really, really stupid to leave applesauce in the middle of code because it feels like we've taken a step Maybe not backwards, but maybe actually backwards. Certainly not very far forwards when we introduce that applesauce. We've gone from nothing to obviously nonsense or from nonsense that's sort of attempting to be useful and could be misleading uh, to obviously nonsense, right? Okay, it's better, but, but really, it doesn't meet my standards of professional uh, of professional ethics. It doesn't meet that, that, that deep developer value. It feels like if I check this in, I'm inflicting pain on the next guy because now he looks at this and goes, Great. They didn't even think to give me a good name. They just they just gave up. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, uh, let me interject there because this is this yeah. is the this is the the key highlight for me in in the struggle is that when you, when you you check this in and I and I don't mean check it in like to the the branch you that push I it to Maine. Yeah, push it to Maine. Yeah. So this is the conundrum that I have with it is mm -hmm. that when we talk about naming as a process, there's there's an example that you give in one of your videos that 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 talks about developers having to read the method. They spend 10 minutes doing so, then they move on and forget it and then do the same thing again two weeks later. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think you give the example of with 20 devs, this costs like 60 dev hours and like three features a year or something like that. And that's a problem with a bad name. But that's what applesauce is. Like we just put in a method that does that. And if you do that multiple times, now we've exacerbated that issue to where we have a code base full of multiple applesauces that people have to read and spend time that costs us features a year. So this yeah. is this is actually a step backwards when it's left there to linger. And the second piece I have as an issue with it is that it's such obvious nonsense that a developer may not even know to read it, right? They won't know that this functionality that this thing is doing, at least if you do like a probably whatever that as part of the process, that it's communicating some intent, that right, there's right. a chance a developer will, if, they, if they're looking for a function that does this, that they're gonna be like, okay, this might be it, I will look at it. But if it's applesauce or even worse, a class is called applesauce, they're never gonna find it and they might completely duplicate that code, rewrite it. And so I guess the argument here is that when applesauce is obvious nonsense, it's to call out that people should fix it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it's a bad name, it should bug people, right? It, so it does, yeah. <laughs> you wanna fix it. But if you if we've effectively allowed this into Maine, then then you sort of counter that argument because you're you're we're going against that uncomfortability, right? We're saying, nah, it's, if you can push it, if you if you can bear, which I can't, so maybe it's working, right? <laughs> because I can't do it. But but if you if you can bear pushing this to Maine, then it's not uncomfortable enough, right? Because then we we push that problem, like you said, onto somebody else, and that that sort of contradicts that. Yeah. So it is. Yeah, so so where I feel on that, where I'm going with it, is the next step uh, of internalization of naming as a process is as you've done it and the rest of your team has done that individually, then the next step is naming is now a team process, right? And so there's no difference in what the steps are, but there's no longer an assumption that I'm going to take every one of them. And that's where obvious nonsense can be very helpful because I can be working with a very long thing and I can extract out some chunks that I know are useful chunks and are, I also know are unrelated to the work that I'm doing. And I can quickly name them applesauce and toss them out and know that I'm trusting we as a team are going to address that. And likewise, other people can do that. And when I come into one that's related to me, I will do it, right? And it's, it's, so it's, it's that next level out, but yes, it absolutely has that problem. And it does depend on the whole team. The first time anyone comes to one of those applesauce, instead of, reading it and understanding and carrying on, they do the next step of naming as a process and they do take it into a, an honest name. And I think that potentially here too, the distinction um, that, that wasn't spoken, that when it's a team process, you're saying, it's this is a code base that is in a refactoring state. Like we're not adding new features necessarily. Because uh, that's to me, I mean, I know I, you could, but- I'm but, thinking we're adding new features. I w I'm thinking that every code base, the design is perpetually in a state of flux. And when we release it, the design is always 
halfway between what it was and what we imagine it could potentially be because every new feature causes us to imagine a new different potential right <laughs> what we need keeps shifting and it keeps moving towards those yeah i mean i guess i was trying to draw the line there of saying okay if you're if you're in a refactoring mode so to speak as a team i could rationalize having more applesauce is in the code base because it, other people in the team would pick it up and because they aren't really adding new features i don't run the risk of them missing functionality that exists because it's named completely nonsense right where they, they couldn't even stumble upon that this thing that i needed to do already you know this function already exists in the code base so they don't rewrite it as they add a new feature but if, if we're in that mix of both then again i i hesitate I don't feel comfortable putting it into main because again of, of the, the cognitive overload that I've introduced to force people to read it every time, which is gonna cost us time. The more you have in the code base, applesauce one, two, three, four, five, you, you've only made that worse and then you run the risk of it being missed. So again, yep. you have to convince me for this, but, but again, I'm totally on board with it as part of the process, but sort of punting it down onto somebody else, um, I'm, I'm not there, I just cool. can't. Okay. <laughs> so Honestly, the whole point of the, of all of this stuff is that you make one progression at a time as it is natural. And so the next progression is where the whole team is doing this. So there's, there's two common approaches where either we do a proof of concept, we get everyone on one team and we show, and we're able to really show how does this roll forward as the entire team is thinking in the new way and learning it and progressing, uh, which is fantastic for really seeing what's possible but doesn't scale worth crap because you get <laughs> one team goes ahead and all the rest are left where they were. And when you start to try and expand, you don't have this, the, the structures yet to do that. And what we did here was uh, started building a center of excellence. We pulled a bunch of people from other teams, developed these skills so that then we can now really bring it out to teams and, and support them. But the disadvantage is that with that, we can see the first level, how it changes individuals, but you can't yet see how it changes teams. And so I think this is a perfect example where what you've got is a fantastic and effective change of the individual. And that's all that was, is really possible right now. And that's great. And my suspicion is if your team adopts it and every person on your team gets to the point where you are now, then naturally from there in another month or two, you will observe yourself changing again. And it's, it's not a matter of convincing, it's a matter of context. And right now you're doing the right behavior for the context that you're in. Sure. All right, I'm gonna jump in, gentlemen. This has been fantastic. Just sitting here listening to you guys talk about this. I'm, I'm laughing, I'm uncomfortable, and at the same time learning, and it's, it's really been awesome. Uh, so just kind of reflecting on what I've heard through the conversation is, you know, from the beginning, we waste a lot of time making and managing and fixing bugs. Uh, I was really surprised, you know, the average developer is making three bugs a day. Some get caught, some don't. But I can see, as you explained it in the beginning, Arlo, the, the vastness of how much time and energy is spent on dealing with these bugs. So then the second piece is that the, the insight loop is helping us see the code differently and really view the world in a different way. And I loved your analogy of how painter sees the tree and they look at it differently. My wife does that with interior design. She sees things in the house that I can't see. Like it's, it's gray. I don't know. What do you want me to say? Like, <laughs> but then the, the thing that one of the things you said, Aaron, that really struck me was, you know, your engineering culture creates habits. Some are good, some are bad. And, you know, as you explained in your experience, you 
well, I don't want to show my my unpublished book to somebody else. And and kind of as you grow and mature and learn, like this is a better way to do it. And ultimately, where I where I hear us ending up talking about these nonsense names and and how an individual learns it first, refactoring is good for the individual, but it has to become a team sport for us to really win and to get rid of the bugs. And so I think that's kind of where I landed. And I hope that you know the audience has kind of come along with us on the journey in that way too. And this has been a really fantastic conversation. I wish we had more time to talk about this because there's obviously passion here and energy here. I'd like to close by letting people know that uh, we have built, developed a center of excellence and Aaron and other people there are able to help teams for any of the teams out there that want to start to learn to see things like a painter and and to, to change them like a uh, open source book author, we have support to help them do that. You can reach out to Mark uh, to figure out how. Um, so I want to say thank you to Aaron and to Arlo and to Mark. Thank you all for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I'd love to do it again someday as we, we get a little more experience uh, in using the Insight Loop. And so thank you very much. I appreciate it, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and share it with others. To learn more about Amway's Agile journey, follow the hashtag Amway Agile on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you're an employee, do that and search Amway Agile forward slash in your browser.